Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher. And from Motley Fool Deep Value, Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, 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 hey Chris. Chris. We've got the latest earnings from Wall Street. We've got two apparel retail stocks going in opposite directions. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the big macro. The jobs report out Friday morning was disappointing, even though unemployment stayed at 5.1%. And earlier in the week, U.S. auto sales for September surprisingly strong, Ron Gross, with sales up around 15% overall. When you look across the big macro for this week, what stands out to you? I think I'll highlight um, that U6 unemployment rate that I like to chat about every now and again. It's that broader measure of employment. Fell to 10%. Haven't been there since June of 2008. I like to see it. If it gets between eight and ten per eight and ten percent, then I really like what I see because that, that's a good number. But on this flip side of that, you can't not mention the labor participation rate, which fell to its lowest rate since October 1997. So that kind of offsets some of some of those good employment numbers. Um, so you, you kind of got to mention both of them hand in hand. Yeah, and Jason, part of that unemployment report, also the revisions for July and August uh, being revised in the way we don't like to see. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think that's always something worth noting is we, we always get caught in the present when we look at these jobs numbers, and, and they're almost always, if not always, revised. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the revisions downward certainly hurt. And uh, when you see the labor force participation rate so low, and you see that wages are very flat, that's not all that encouraging. It'll be interesting to see how uh, the Fed ends up responding to this down the road with their rate policy. I, you know, stepping back just to the auto sales that you brought up. I mean, that to me was really was really pretty interesting. And and speaking as a consumer who actually participated in that this past September, Chris, you know, I feel like uh, Ford, you're welcome because we threw a little <laughs> money your way. Uh, and how many times did you participate, Jason? Well, so I think so. My wife's my wife's car would actually count for August, I believe. Right? Oh, okay. My car does count for September because it in fact was September. Well, Ford um, sales increased. 20 23 percent. So. I was going to say, I mean, that GM was 12.5%. Ford really, really brought the heat, 23.3% there. Uh, and so it's interesting to me to even look at Ford's stock in light of that news, couple that with all of the headwinds Volkswagen is facing. And even though Volkswagen is a very small amount, you know, as, as far as market share goes here domestically, uh, I think that probably bodes well for the American automakers. But I mean, it's worth noting that Ford, at least for one, was offering, uh, you know, as a deal, as an, as an offer you couldn't refuse. <laughs> it was, you know, free money essentially. Uh, but man, if Ford Ford stock now is yielding four and a half percent, that's actually pretty interesting. Mark hmm. Fields has got to be feeling pretty good about things right now. Jeff Fisher, what stands out to you this so, week? So, Chris, yeah, we had September payrolls were weak, as we all just talked about, but also August factory orders uh, were down one point seven percent, more than expected, and we saw weak manufacturing numbers this week. So, across the board, you're kind of seeing weakness. August through now September. But the thing to keep in mind is, one, the economists who made the earlier predictions, are, are they're always wrong, and they will get revised. Uh, in this case, revised lower, which was unfortunate. But 
the final thing to keep in mind is these are we're backward looking and the market is forward looking so in a way it's good that we just had some weakness we've already gone through it hopefully we'll get stronger going forward so yeah, do, do it, we think no rate hike this year i was just going to say what does this all boil I, I, down I, to I, I think the people who are saying well you know we're going to see a rate hike in october i, I think they're very quiet <laughs> yeah we'll see I, I i think i had said the next time around we'd see one um but mm, i don't know I'd this be, might be I'd, pushed i'd be surprised at this point yeah i think you want to be looking to place your money on a rate hike in 2016 yeah Costco's fourth quarter profits came in solidly above expectations, but Wall Street seemed unimpressed. Jason Moser, uh, stock flat for the week. What gives? This is a good quarter. So yeah, I mean you're right, and, and Wall Street maybe doesn't doesn't seem impressed based on the reaction. I think that Wall Street has consistently been impressed with Costco. I mean the stock is is performing very well based on its growth prospects. And that's actually something we've been kicking around over at MDP a good while now here is that while Costco brings in great numbers and they have a number of stores out there it's uh what total of of 686 stores worldwide 480 of those are in the United States. And so the the question we have that continues to kind of linger is are they going to be able to bring their international presence uh, you know up up to parity with with their domestic presence. Management believes that they can. It will take some time to do. I'm not I'm not necessarily sure that's that's so realistic. Uh, in you know the, the the deal with Costco is I mean they uh, bring in a lot of money with those membership fees and then they're able to offer those rock bottom prices. Gross margin actually improved a little bit, but they saw some headwinds uh, with gasoline uh, prices being so much lower than they were a year ago. You know, Costco is a wonderful business. It's trading at about twenty-five times forward earnings, which you know, for a business that's not lobbing up that kind of growth, it starts making you wonder if this isn't a little bit overpriced at this point. Yeah, I was going to say I think that's fair from a valuation perspective. I think it is the kind of company you can hold as one of we like to say a core holding, yeah. and you probably do pretty well over time, certainly on a risk-adjusted basis. I got lucky a couple weeks ago. There was that one day where the market it looked like the floor was going to drop out, and I was able to pick up some Costco fifteen or twenty dollars cheaper than where it's trading yeah, today. It was well just that played. It, it was just that one time thing. But if you watch Costco and you ever get that opportunity, then it's just a wonderful company to own. That's just it. I mean, it's just the quality of the business is so high. I mean, you 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 typically are paying up for that quality. So to Ron's point, whenever you see that thing go on sale like that, that's certainly one that should be at the top of your list. So many quality re- retailers are trading at. Multiples of twenty or above right now. Yeah. Whether it's Starbucks, Home Depot, Costco, uh, Dunkin' Donuts. Names, yeah. if well, maybe not as quality. They're Dunkin'. Yep. I mean, no, not you know, Dunkin'. Man. I gotta throw that in there because we're talking about it later. <laughs> we'll get to that later in the show. But, uh, what that's telling me is the market really believes retailers, consumers. I mean, are going to remain strong or get stronger going forward. Sure. Alcoa kicks off earnings season next week, but making headlines this week with the news that it is splitting into two separate companies. Uh, one is going to be focused on upstream activities and will be named Alcoa. <laughs> what do you mean by upstream? What the heck? And We'll get into that. I was going to tip that over to you, but <laughs> I'm more fascinated by the fact that they've got a second business, which they don't have a name for. They've reportedly been working on this move They're for so a couple of years. To break up, yeah. How do they not have a name Let's for this? Let's do it. Yet? Let's do it. We'll name that other company later. And the new company is the one the CEO is going to go to. Yes. So that's the one you want to kind of direct your your attention towards. Can we at least agree? While we say all the time, you never want to hinge on one single data point. If you see a company <laughs> breaking in two, and the CEO says, "I'm going with this one," can't we all agree that that's the one you should be looking at? Yeah, especially yeah. when it's unnamed. Yeah, it's yeah. unnamed, but I'm still going there. You can keep Alcoa. So Alcoa itself will now have the the legacy smelting, refining, the 123 some year old business of getting these materials from the earth and making them into something usable. 
And uh, the new business will be the one that's supplying the components, the bodies to autos and aerospace and, and whatnot. So that's more the value-added business. Now, they're both giant businesses, but they've really kind of overshadowed one another. Lately, aluminum has fallen out of bed, aluminum pricing, and that's been a drag on Alcoa's entire business, even though the higher-end component business is, is doing pretty well. So, by breaking this apart, they're hoping to highlight the strengths of the component business and let the aluminum business just wither away. And No. no uh, the other business should do well as, as well, because they can take out costs and uh, just really focus on the commodity side. Maybe that's the name, the other one. It's kind of <laughs> like the Grateful one. Dead, right? I mean, that's how they came up with that. Like, oh, let's play the other one. Well, that worked out to be a pretty good title, right? The, the thing to be careful about, spinoffs do pretty well. The Bloomberg Spinoff Index, which You tracks, made that up. No, I, I wish I... <laughs> if I did, I'll trademark it. Uh, it's a proxy for spin-off performance. It, it it gained more than 500% since 2002, compared to about 100% for the S&P. So, spin-offs can do well, because the business is refocused and, and has new ways to grow value. But right now, I would, I would watch Alcoa has a lot of debt, and how that debt is going to be divided between these two companies is not yet detailed. Heck, the name isn't even detailed. Yeah. So, Still some questions to, to be see. answered. Yep. Shares of Twitter, very much a roller coaster this week on reports that co-founder and interim CEO Jack Dorsey is going to get the word interim removed from his title. But uh, Jason, Twitter's board of directors has yet to confirm that. What is going on at this company? Meanwhile, you know, Dorsey, as we've talked about before, seems very much like the person for this job. He's also got another job. He's CEO of the <laughs> mobile startup Square, Just which is another spoke, little multi-billion-dollar. Yeah, which is, is due to go public later this year. Sure, and I think that's something uh, important to note here is that for the noise that we've heard this week, and I think that really started on Wednesday. Uh, it really is nothing more than noise at this point, because until you actually hear a formal announcement from the company, uh, this is all just based on you know some some tech reporting, which probably uh, you know is is right. I mean, I think that uh, you know for the for the the past three months, the going thinking has been that really Jack Dorsey is the guy for this job. Um, I I agree with that. I mean, personally, for me, I think it's important that. You know, a founder get back into the to the to the driver's seat here and really kind of help steer this business forward. I've certainly seen as a a, u- a user of Twitter, there has been a lot rolling out here in a short amount of time. Three months seems like a really long time to go without a permanent CEO. It's worth noting though that Satya Nadella it took about six months to get him into Microsoft too. So this isn't abnormal. Uh, so who knows when we actually will see a formal announcement? If we see a formal announcement, I think we will. And at that point, I think that we will see this shake out to where Jack Dorsey will be the CEO, Adam Bain will be the COO. You'll have Anthony Noto as the CFO. They'll have a bit more of a convention, uh, conventional leadership structure there, and it sounds like they want to get up there and shake the board up a little bit to actually make this a board that is doing something. Uh, you know, it seems like you could probably go through right now with a stethoscope just to test if they actually have a heartbeat because it just seems like they're sitting on their thumbs. <laughs> Don't you? think, though, that if this does play out the way you've said, then the clock starts ticking, and they've got maybe a year to show some serious results before people start saying, this company either needs to be acquired or just go private. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think I think that you know when you look at you look at what Twitter has done thus far, it's not a question really of monetization. I mean, they are growing their revenue. That's good because they don't appear to be making rate. money. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the profitability obviously will come as the business matures, but I, I do think you're right. They they will have a limited amount of time to really sort of help change the narrative there, and I, I think they'll be successful doing that because I think that 
uh, you know, last month's or last quarter's call where, where Jack actually participated for the first time, it did seem to be they, there was a sense of urgency there that hasn't been there before. And I really do think that, uh, th- that this will be something they'll focus on here immediately. Coming up, we've got apparel, retail, and donuts. What more could you possibly need? Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, and Ron Gross. This week, Ralph Lauren, founder of the eponymous apparel retail company, announced he is stepping down as CEO, and the stock popped on the news, Ron, as though he's been running this business into the ground. They've been public almost 20 years. Stock has done very well with him at the helm. True, but it has been struggling lately as a business and as a stock. Um, we're down 37% year-to-date, even with the pop that we saw um, following the, the announcement. So, important to understand, he's not going anywhere. Still executive chairman, still chief creative officer, controls 81% of the voting power of this of this uh, business. So he's firmly entrenched in this company. But we've brought on um, a new a new mind here to run this. Interestingly, from Old Navy and H and M. So we're looking downstream um, to the more value side. Um, the lower price segment of the, of the retail apparel industry, which is interesting because obviously Ralph Lauren is a premium brand, and it kind of goes to show you what they thought is needed here, and, and maybe where the direction of Ralph Lauren will go in the future. Yeah, Stefan Larson, who's been the president of Old Navy for the last few years, and as we've talked about before, that's really been the brightest spot of the Gap's business, and uh, Wall Street appears to agree because not only did uh, Ralph Lauren stock pop. On the news that Larson is going to be the new CEO, the Gap's stock fell through the floor. I mean, there's basically a twenty percent differential between these two stocks this week, just because of Larson. Yeah, a well-respected guy. Obviously, he wasn't on my radar to be honest um, to any to any major extent. But he's got to feel good. He's got um, he's got a challenge in front of him, which I hope he thinks is exciting. I'm sure he does. I hope Ralph Lauren doesn't go completely the opposite way and turn into a uh, a lower discount brand that you see all over the place. I hope they, they maintain some of their cachet. Why? How did that work out for Coach? <laughs> that story is still being written, my friend. <laughs> Shares of Duncan Brands down 10% on Thursday after lowering guidance for the rest of 2015. The company also plans to close 100 Duncan Donuts locations in the next year. I'm doing my part, Jeff. I, I'm done. You are, and you brought munchkins in this morning? Yeah, we, we I'm, I'm trying to help this of. business. But I, I mean, is this simply a function of them expanding too quickly when you see this number of locations shutting down? I don't think it really is, because these are all locations that are being closed by a franchisee, by Speedway stores, Speedway gas station and convenience stores, and they represent 0.1% of Duncan's U.S. sales. So, they're, they're really a blip on their radar. And the good part is about closing these little locations is they can then in those areas open full-scale locations. So they didn't change their they still plan to open 410 to 440 net new stores this year, revenue growth 6-8% more or less. And they did lower their EPS guidance but only by a penny or two per share. So it's it's very minor. What maybe took the stock down as much as anything else where same store sales growth was slow 1.1% versus 2.9% last quarter. So they saw lower, less traffic, and they're revamping the menu. They said they took some things away, and that didn't work out so well. Uh, bottom line is, there's a lot of competition for where we all go to get our coffee and our breakfast, and that competition is going to remain 
very strong across the board. So it's it's still pretty striking when you look at any sort of a map of where coffee locations are. Just how it is so concentrated in the eastern half and particularly the northeast part of the United States, and the opportunity in in the West and particularly California is is pretty enormous. It is. I I think the sell off in Duncan shares this week was probably overdone. I can't say the stock is cheap. It trades at 20 times expected earnings uh, for this year, but they are growing, expected to grow up 15% or so next year, bottom line. So, not bad. Shares of McCormick falling this week after third quarter profits came in lower than expected. McCormick controls about 20% of the global packaged spice market. And, Jason, it is Specifically, that international part of the business that's really hurting their results. You know, that's amazing to think they control 20% of the market. Who controls the other 80%? Because it seems like McCormick's <laughs> all you see. Um, and that really, I think, is, is the reason why they're so successful. It was a decent quarter for the company. Uh, as you noted, currency hurt, hurt them a little bit. This is a, a really another wonderful business. We're talking about Costco. This is another wonderful business. Um, and it's one you want to buy when it's out of favor. And unfortunately, that's just not this, this time. Uh, but because they make almost half of their Money outside of the U.S., they are going to witness more currency effects than than others, and then that certainly played out on the on the company's results. I think the underlying business though is still still performing very well. There's a, a big acquisition they made back in 2012 in China called Wuhan Asia Asia Pacific Condiments. That is paying off. They're gaining more share there with the consumer, and they're seeing some some sort of the uh, the, the roll off of the all of the avian bird uh, flu concerns we saw out there on the commercial side. So they're seeing some some uh, better numbers there as well. Again, I mean this is one. It's it's trading at around 23 times full year estimates, which for a company that's just not putting up that kind of growth, you know, I, I, this is one you want to be a little bit more opportunistic on. But you know, I understand why the market's paying up for it. It is a very quality business, and uh, yeah, I'll never forget having gone out to that factory. They're they're factory out in Hunt Valley, Maryland. I mean, it was just a a life changing experience for a cook like me. <laughs> <laughs> it must have smelled wonderful. It was. Very good. Well, we got about a minute left. Um, let's tap some of that cooking expertise, and I'll start with you, Ron Gross. Uh, when you look in the universe of spices and herbs, what's something? You know, don't give me salt and pepper. I'm good on those. <laughs> okay. Give me something underrated that I can, uh, you know, spice up my menu with. Well, I don't think everyone will agree, but I think fennel is not used nearly enough, especially in Italian cooking. Sausage, t- tomato sauces really can be a-, a nice little surprise. Jason, would ginger count here? Sure. I mean, I, sure. you know, I, I mean, Asian Asian cooking to me is, is really delicious. Uh, and ginger can change virtually any dish. I, I mean, I love some good fresh ginger. What about you, Hefe? I won't say salt. I'll say sea salt. There you oh, go. you're one of those. <laughs> Still <laughs> NaCl too, no matter how you slice it. Come on, it. you can like put it in olive oil, dip your bread in it, on avocado, on pasta, on popcorn. Sea salt is killer. You're not. You're not getting. I say this from time to time. You're just not getting this kind of information on Bloomberg. You're just not. Right. Thankfully, yes. Guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, a few tips for smart thinking. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Malcolm Gladwell calls our guest this week the most influential thinker in his life. Richard Nismet is a professor of psychology at the University of Michigan and the author of several books. His latest is Mindware, Tools for Smart Thinking. He joins me now from Michigan. Richard, thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, There are a lot of tools in your book. Uh, We're a show about business and money and investing, so I want to focus more on the 
economic side of the equation. And that is one of the questions that you pose in your book. Should people think like an economist? From your way of thinking and from your study, what does it mean to think like an economist, and should we be doing it? Uh, well, first of all, uh, it means just following the basic rules of cost-benefit analysis. Um, figuring out the costs of, of an action, figuring out the benefits, comparing it to the next most plausible-sounding action that you might take, um, and the corollaries of the cost-benefit principle, uh, which is how to avoid the sunk cost trap uh, and how to be ever attentive to opportunity costs for any action that you've chosen. If it's a tremendously important personal decision, uh, it's worth spending a lot of time. But um, here's where psychologists enter the act. And one of the things that interests me most is um, the uh, way that economists and psychologists can play off one another to get improved decisions. Psychologists think, uh, well, certainly I think, that the best decision theorist for important personal decisions is Freud, who said in matters of love and work, the unconscious should decide. So, bottom line, the more important and personal the decision is, the more important it is to do the cost-benefit analysis, and the more important it is to throw it away and sit on it for a while, think about it, let your unconscious do the work, because we know that the unconscious really does a lot of things better than the conscious mind, and making choices is one of them. Let's talk about the principle of sunk costs, because that's something we run into as investors from time to time. Um, if I'm buying a $12 ticket to go see a movie, and 30 minutes in, the movie's no good, should I walk out? Because i got to say, I'm a movie fan, and I, I, I can count on one hand the number of times I've walked out of a movie. Right. I think few of us walk out of movies at all, and uh, economists would say, uh, so much the worse for us. Um, Economists, uh, I should say, I've studied how economists actually make decisions in everyday life, and they are a different species from the rest of us. I mean, <laughs> they do walk out of movies. Uh, they do leave expensive meals uh, uneaten. Uh, they abandon projects that they spend a tremendous amount of time on. Uh, they cut bait. And, uh, and let me give an example of what's um, of a kind of sunk cost trap that most of us are going to be so likely to fall into. Suppose you bought a ticket for a basketball game uh, a month ago. You paid a hundred bucks for it. Uh, tonight's night of the game, uh, but the star's not playing. Uh, nothing hangs on the outcome of the game. Uh, it started to rain cats and dogs, and you have to walk six blocks to the subway. Um, you're going to say, gee, do I really want to do that? Um, but there's a compelling feeling you don't want to waste that hundred bucks. And the economist says, honk, wrong. You can't waste that hundred bucks. You don't have it anymore. Uh, you're framing the problem wrong. Uh, you know, and the economist's motto, which is very freeing, I think, is the rest of my life begins now. I mean, you can't get that money back. You can pay twice. You can pay once for the ticket and once for sitting there watching a boring game. Uh, and that's why they walk away from uh, things they put a lot of time, energy, or money into. And they're right about that. 
One of the things that comes up in your book time and time again is the many different ways every one of us is affected by unconscious cues. It can be the color of the paint on the wall in a room. It can be something as simple as having coffee on a first date as opposed to having a cold drink and how that can affect your mood. Are you surprised by anything you've come across in your research, or are you experienced enough now where anything is fair game in terms of the way unconscious elements can affect the way we make conscious decisions? Uh, Let me start at a top level on that and say, in my recent thinking, I've decided that the main story of psychology of the last 150 years is that we keep discovering how small the fraction of mental life is that we're aware of, that we're conscious of. It just gets smaller and smaller, which is scary in some ways. You refer to, you know, if you and I uh, are communing over coffee, we're going to think the other guy's a pretty warm guy. You know, why, how nice to meet such a swell fellow. If it's iced tea, well, I don't know, he's kind of a cold fish. Uh, <laughs> So there, there are these. Um, there's a huge range of stimuli that we are responding to. Uh, it's it's absolutely vast all the time. The unconscious mind is super efficient at parallel processing. The conscious mind is a, a unitary, single, narrow channel, uh, and the unconscious is constantly perusing the environment, referring to us things that we need to know about. Unfortunately, some of the things that it tosses into the stew are things we shouldn't really be attending to. Um, so, and psychologists now, it's really, the, it's all the rage uh, to show these dinky things that have an impact on us that are, uh, that are embarrassing. So, um, the more importantly, though, are the things that... Uh, that really are chronically important and often the major determinants of our view, not just you know a little bit of body English putting on it by the warm coffee versus the cold tea, but um, and that's our failure to recognize the power of social influence. Um, I, we do things uh, to a huge extent just because other people are doing them. By the way, isn't a bad rule of thumb. I mean, you know, there's wisdom in crowds, and we maybe should be doing that. But um, we, you know, I, I started playing tennis a long time ago and noticed everybody else I knew was playing tennis, and then I lost interest, and then I said, geez, the tennis courts are kind of empty these days. And I bought a Saab automobile, and everybody, my friends had that. And it, it's, it, you're simply not aware that's why you're doing things, uh, is that because other people are. Um, but uh, you can make use of that. If you're aware of the, of the fact of the importance of social influence, uh, you can uh, make that work for you in your own behalf. It can make you uh, have other people do uh, something that you would like them to do or that you think is uh, in their own interests or in society's interests. Uh, and social psychologists now have got a lot of tricks uh, that are really socially beneficial that take advantage of this. For example, the state of California 
has saved hundreds of millions of dollars in energy costs uh, by hanging tags on people's doors, the ones who are using more electricity than their neighbors, saying, you're using more electricity than your neighbors, and the use drops down. Uh, billions of tons of CO2 have not been put into the atmosphere uh, because of this simple uh, gimmick. Last question, and then I'll let you go. For anyone listening who's looking to just get better at how they view the world, how to solve problems, what, what is one concrete thing we can each do to become smarter in, our, in the way we think? Well, I'm going to return to that point that I've decided is the major lesson of psychology, and that is the, uh, the size and role of the unconscious. Because just as we're finding that, you know, sort of things, we're doing things because of unconscious stimuli that we would probably wouldn't want to influence us, we're discovering that the unconscious is really a better problem solver in some respects than the conscious mind. Uh, there's a lovely book of essays uh, collected by Brewster Gieselin, by uh, the most uh, creative thinkers uh, in history, writers, uh, artists, uh, scientists, mathematicians, uh, and that they're saying how I did it, you know, my, my great accomplishment, you know, how that came about. In every case, it was not while the person was sitting at the desk working on the problem. It was when the problem was not in the conscious mind at all. They were on vacation, and uh, they put this, Poincaré says, I put my foot on the step uh, of the bus, and I suddenly realized that the transformations of the Fuchsian functions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was at a bar backyard barbecue, uh, you know, waiting for my hamburger and thinking about the sunset, and it suddenly uh, hit me out of the blue. Well, what was that got to do with the rest of us who are not geniuses? It has everything to do with it, it because the unconscious can solve problems that the conscious mind can't, but you've got to do the homework for the unconscious mind. If you say, oh, I'm going to do this project, I have this project in mind, I'm going to, I'm going to do that somewhere down the road. Sit down now and think about exactly what the project would be, Sketch what a solution would be. Uh, start writing something if it's a there's a writing project, which may be junk, uh, but uh, but get something down. The writer John McPhee, who's a wonderful writer, writes a lot for the New Yorker, says the best thing to do is uh, write a letter to your mother, telling you what you're going to do, uh, and that sets the stage. It brings the issues to the fore, and now the unconscious will start working on it. And the sort of mundane problem-solving I do, if I wait to the last minute, for example, to create uh, thought questions for a class, they're not going to be very good. Uh, the class is not going to go all that well. If three or four days in advance I sit down and say, well, what, what, are, those, what are the main points of the readings? What would a couple of questions look like? Uh, that doesn't sound great, but, I mean, maybe something can come of it. Then I sit down when I'm at the deadline. I've got to produce something. And it feels like I'm taking those questions by dictation. Uh, <laughs> it's coming from somewhere. It's coming from a megaphone way back in my mind, uh, rather than something that I'm effortfully creating. So um, the unconscious uh, is un embarrassingly 
likely to bring things into a decision process or problem-solving process that we'd rather weren't there. But it also can do things that the conscious mind can't do. It can make decisions better uh, than uh, the conscious mind left to itself. It can solve problems better than the conscious mind left to itself. The book is Mindware Tools for Smart Thinking. It is available everywhere. Richard Nisbet, thanks for being here. Thank you. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio once again, Jason Moser, Jeff Fisher, and Ron Gross. Let's dip into the Fool mailbag before we get to the stocks on our radar. Radio at Fool.com is our email address from David Lee in Australia. Longtime listener, first-time writer, I'd like to hear your thoughts on Horsehead Holdings. Do you think it is a turnaround play or a value trap in light of its recent price collapse? Uh, down about 65% hey, hey, hey. in the last month, Ron. What do you think? How much time you got? Uh, not I'll, that I'll much. be quick. We got three things going on. Brand new expensive facility taking longer to ramp up than expected. Macroeconomic headwinds largely caused by China causing zinc prices to fall. And Horsehead's cash is dwindling as a result of both factors. So that's the real risk here, liquidity risks. They could run out of cash before this business turns. I think they will be okay, but any investor in the stock needs to understand that there is a true risk of permanent loss of capital, as our value investors like to say. But it also has a multi-bagger potential. Question from Jason Lyon, who writes, I was hoping you could offer some insight about Arcos Dorados. To my untrained eye, the price seems to be hovering around imminent failure territory. (laughs) Are all the concerns about this company strictly currency-related, or are there flaws in the company which currency problems are exacerbating to the point where everyone is fleeing the stock? I've heard you quote the mantra before that you should be greedy when others are fearful. And in light of that, the current price has never looked better for acquiring a stake in McDonald's largest franchisee. But to that end, how do I know when being greedy is foolish with a capital F mm. or foolish with a small f? It's a that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, specific to Arcos, it largely is a macroeconomic problem. Although, as we've seen here in the states, McDonald's has been struggling. But the, the weak economies of Brazil and Venezuela are really struggling. Soft consumer spending, the currency translation is an absolute mess. Companies cutting costs, they're monetizing some of their real estate assets. The balance sheet is not great, so you could end up having a value trap here if things continue to deteriorate. And Jason, I mean, beyond Arcos Dorados, how how do you make the difference between this is an opportunity to jump in at a cheaper price versus I think this company's got problems? Primarily, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure I can either identify a a short term catalyst or a long term trend in play here. And it may not necessarily be blatantly obvious. I mean, you may have to kind of dig deeper to, to sort of figure that out. But if you can't find a plausible short-term catalyst or a, a reasonable long-term trend in play, uh, chances are you could be looking at a value trap. Yeah, I like to usually start to see the storm clouds start to break, see some light at the end of the tunnel, and then more safely start to buy in. And keep an eye on the balance sheet because they need those resources to give it the company time to turn around. 
All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. We'll bring in our man Steve Roydo from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, what are you looking at this week? I'm going to go back to Crocs, C-R-O-X. Stock got whacked this week when it lowered its third quarter uh, revenue guidance by just a measly $10 million. And part of that was due to currency. Part of that was doing they're withholding some shipments from China um, to the Chinese distributors. Really, the stock should not have sold off as much as it did. Um, I think the company's doing a really nice job. Their midterm goals that they've laid out seem very achievable. Stocks at 11, I think worth 17 um, without too much trouble there. Steve Broido, question about Crocs? Have they had any success with actually fashionable shoes? They all just look kind of dopey to me. They're very comfortable, but they do look dopey. No, I think they've made some good traction into things that look more like a, a typical boat shoe versus that traditional clog and, and some other kind of um, designs as well. And I think they've done a good job. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Sure, looking at uh, Interactive Brokers, ticker is IBKR. This one I've been talking with Brendan Matthews over on the Stock Advisor team about uh, potentially bringing over to the MDP watch list. But Interactive Brokers is an electronic broker, uh, very much like your Scott Trade and TD Ameritrades of the world, except Interactive Brokers is a bit... It's it's a bit less fuss and really all just about this platform and volume. They're trying to really attract the the traders that are trading in large volume day in and day out. Uh, their claim to fame is being the low cost provider, and and so uh, you know for for me, they offer more products really than anyone else, from stocks and bonds to currency, just the widest breadth of offerings and in, in, in liquidity that really makes them attractive uh, for for bigger clients. And I think. Uh, you know this. The founder of the business, Thomas Petterfee, he's going to be stepping down as the CEO here soon. He does have a succession plan in place with the, uh, with the uh, he he'll stay on a chairman, but the current president, Milan Galic, who's an associate of Petterfee, he's been with the business for 20 years, will be taking over. So I feel like there's a good succession plan in place. This is a well-run business that's that's performed very well in our foolish universe to date. Steve, question about Interactive Brokers? Do you think people worry about their money being safe at a place like Interactive Brokers? I mean, I think Schwab, Safety Rock, Merrill Lynch, Safety Rock, Interactive Brokers, I don't know. Why doesn't Interactive Brokers elicit any confidence in you, Steve? <laughs> I mean, it just, it's Interactive, it's it Brokers, it's, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's just I'm sure safe. they're insured. It's but just as safe. Jeff Fisher, we've got about it's a minute the left. power of old Wall Street. Uh, Gilead Sciences, uh, a stock we own in Motley Fool Pro, ticker is GILD. They are really dominating the $20 billion hepatitis C market. There's a lot more room to grow there. They just had positive results on their next generation hepatitis C drug. They also have the leading HIV franchise helping people with HIV. The stock trades at 8.3 times expected earnings after Hillary Clinton and others uh, attacked it on, on Twitter. And biotech went down as a whole this week sharply. Steve, question about Gilead Sciences? What's the next big thing for them? That's the big question. That's the perfect question. And it's right now, it's hepatitis C for at least two, three, four, five years, in my opinion. And Wall Street thinks it's going to fizz out sooner than that. So that's where I think we have an edge. Steve, you got one you like? Gilead sounds pretty interesting. All right. All right. Ryan Gross, <laughs> Jeff Fisher, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks. That's going to do it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Dr. Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.